Um, my name's Ronnie. It's true. The rumors are true. Um, you know, I've often reflected on just how much I love the name of this conference. I'm so thankful to Ray Cortez for uttering those beautiful words together. You know, lamentably, orthodoxy has come to be understood as something that we get right cognitively. But if you put that word beautiful in front of it, right, it kind of subverts that notion, right? Orthodoxy, if it's beautiful, it has to mean something more than intellectual ascent. It's, it's got to touch the earth, the ground, the dirt. Now, orthodoxy shouldn't need the word beautiful in front of it, but here we are. To know something correctly, biblically speaking, never meant that the brain got it right. It meant that the heart got it right. And it leaves a mark on your life and the earth, and it presses in. Now, this idea comes fairly easy to me because in Spanish, we have two distinct words for the English word to know. So one is saber, to know about something. I know about Australia, even though I've never been there. And then there's a second word, conocer. And you can't use conocer unless there's intimate knowledge, a knowledge that includes getting your hands dirty. This is a knowledge that's palpable, it's, it's touchable, it's, it's deep knowing. It's a heart knowing. And when the heart, not the brain, but the heart knows something, that's, that's when beauty begins to emerge. And this kind of will help us understand why the Apostle Paul would, would plead that the eyes of our heart would be opened. Well, I want to tell a story about the eyes of my heart and being open to new gospel beauty. Uh, yesterday, we got to hear from Aaron Baker. He preached about Mark 4, and when people talk about a violent storm, I listen closely. Uh, I won't go through it all, but Jesus and his disciples, as we learned yesterday, they had a long day of work. They board a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus went down to the lower parts, took a nap, and then a violent storm comes upon them. And these experienced fishermen were sure they were going to die. And maybe they were, you know? And so they shake Jesus awake with these words. Don't you care? I mean, don't you care that we're going to die? A few of you know that I live, as James mentioned, on an island far out in the Caribbean called Puerto Rico. I've been called to um, plant the first PCA churches there, and by God's grace, maybe the PCA's first Spanish-speaking presbytery, if you'd be called, um, pleased to have it. And uh, just a little public service announcement here. Uh, my parents are Mexican that immigrated to Texas, and I'm a Houston kid. Um, thank you, yes, right, Estros. Uh, but y'all need to know that Mexicans and Puerto Ricans are not the same, all right? Uh, you, you, you would never say that an American and a, a Brit and a Canadian are the same, would you? So, little fam, let's tighten up the language. Uh, let's increase our cultural intelligence a little bit. Um, all right. <clears throat> On September 20th, 2017, a Category 5 Hurricane Maria hit us head on. My house was 11 miles off the eye wall of the storm. Gusts of 185 miles per hour ravished our island. If you had a tin or a wooden roof, it probably did not make it. Now, hurricanes are not like tornadoes. You know when they're coming. And anticipating the storm, we invited three other family units to stay in our home because, 
and who wants to pass the storm alone. It's, it's better to do it together. All three of these families that stayed in my home lost everything. Our nightmares were realized. It's hard to put into words what it's like to um, swim into your house and see your mattress and your refrigerator floating. Well, that's what happened to my people. That's what I saw. We were sad. And I'm talking about like a sadness of the soul, you know? God, don't you care that we're going to die? That was a sincere question. It wasn't until months later that I kind of um, began to learn the audacity of my own question. Listen, the whole island lost everything. No electricity, no water, no internet, no phones, no nothing. You guys, people in the United States knew more about the devastation than even I did. A few, a few days after the storm, Sunday came and we had no idea if anyone would even show up to church. I mean, we could barely make it out of our own neighborhood without chainsaws, but people started trickling in. And so we started counting noses, not, not to see if our church was growing, but to see if our church was alive. And then we started counting nickels, not to see how wealthy we'd become, but to see how much money we could put together to help those who are in need. Now, if you've checked out, I, I want you to hear one thing as a frame of reference of what comes next. Our church is not unlike other PCA churches. We're pretty cognitive and orderly. Okay, no, that's, a little, that's overshadow. We're, we're Latinos, all right? We're not that orderly. But, but, we're, but we're orthodox. We're orthodox. I don't, I don't know that we were beautifully orthodox. So ours is a story of how average to below average people who don't necessarily have social justice running through their veins becomes something more than we ever dreamed. Today, if you could fast forward, community and social development, that is to say orthodoxy that touches the earth and the dirt is a huge part of what makes us who we are. Now, how did we get there? Well, we looked around at the devastation and the poverty, poverty that was always there, but now a storm has violently surfaced it. And we looked at it with the eyes of our heart and said, it cannot be business as usual. Life will never be the same again. And so people looked at me and they said, hey, well, well what's the plan? So I rolled up my sleeves and I said, first, cry, check. Second, we're gonna pray, check. Third, let's take an honest inventory of what we have and really who we are. We looked at ourselves and we had some resources, but we also had some deficits. And then I did the unthinkable. I called up five non-reformed pastors whose theology is a little bit messy and I asked them to do the same thing. Why? Because I thought that, um, well, first of all, because I'm Latino and reformed, which, which makes me a unicorn, right? Right, there's just a few of us, like count them. If I only worked with other reformed Latinos, I'd be by myself. Dale, gracias, señora. 
te quiero. Uh, but I thought that, I thought our strengths, right, could cover some of their deficits and their strengths could cover some of our deficits. And, you know, I've often thought about the famous uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. I mean, have you ever noticed that Jesus uses a guy with essentially pagan theology to be the hero of his story? What are we to conclude? No, Jesus is not baptizing Samaritan theology, but there is something beautiful, right, in the sacrifice of the Samaritan. So in the following days of the storm, by God's grace, and because I was dumb enough to reach out to people outside of my tribe, uh, my partner, Jules Martinez, and I, we architected the Christ Collaborative. And the collaborative successfully created logistical plans that reached nearly every single municipality with several hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of food, medicine, water purification systems, and generators. And many of your churches are actually a part of that. Our teams, all composed of average people, average people, were so successful in missions of relief that the Red Cross and the military started using our logistical networks. I still, I have pictures of big military trucks backing up into our church, which was converted into a refuge center to deliver pallets of water because they knew that we would be so efficient in getting them exactly to where they needed to be. And so we identified very intentionally isolated communities to deliver these supplies. And this often required driving to the mountains, getting out of your vehicle, mounting the supplies on your shoulders and hiking up. And y'all, this is when we began to really hear the horror stories. We went to some mountain community, things were awful. We greeted them in the name of Christ. And then they turned their eyes to the Lord and said, God, don't you care that we're going to die? And then they looked at us and they said, go check on so-and-so. Help didn't come soon enough. And they buried their dead out back. It is not business as usual. The months passed and the bleeding finally stopped. The island was beat up, but it was stable. At that time, we restricted our reach. You know, we're just a, kind of a mid-sized church. You, of course, we can't be everything to the whole island. And instead of um, missions of relief to an entire island, we moved our focus to really just one vulnerable community. And we asked, what happens when one church offers not just resources, but relationship to a community? And so we leaned into this community, but we did it differently. We didn't look at them through the filter of what they need. We looked at them as beautiful people made in God's image, brimming with gifts and talents. Now this one community is called Sector La Hormiga, and this is an old squatter community. And that is to say, these people don't have titles to their land and their homes. This community got our attention because it was particularly vulnerable to additional suffering because they don't qualify for FEMA reconstruction resources. Because according to the government, they are illegally on their land. And it didn't matter that their grandparents had been living there since the 40s. Now, if you read Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert's book, When Helping Hurts, they will tell you that there are three key stages, right? Relief, rehabilitation, and development. And it is really harmful to do relief 
when the situation calls for development. And so, because we're a bunch of dummies, we need to be told what to do. We just started reading the book and just doing whatever it said. And so we didn't come to this community with solutions. We came with gospel friendship and open hearts. Your people will be our people, we said. Now, I don't know if they needed us, but I'm absolutely certain that we needed them. And this began a very long-term friendship. Our efforts in the community were um, incredibly intentional. We're present every week, and we aim to never do something for them that they can do for themselves. Now, if you've ever been on a mission, a short-term mission trip, and if you haven't, you need to do one. Just talk to Barbara, right? Y'all need to do short-term mission trips. But if you've done one, you'll remember the sweet gospel euphoria that you got from being used by God. But the people that you helped, though grateful, I am sure, they didn't get that feeling. You know why? Because we were designed to be helpers. We're designed to give our lives away for others. And so the missionary gets that opportunity, but the recipient does not. And so guess what we did? We tried to help them see themselves as the helpers, right? We worked hard to do everything together. And as my daughter Mia told me to tell you guys, when you work together, not only do you help, but you grow a bond that you never would have had before. It's really, really dignifying. And through working together, members from this particular community got additional vocational skills, which are allowing them to start micro businesses and so forth. So they're doing the hard work of flourishing for themselves, you see. Our relationship with this community is not for one day or one week or one month or even a semester. We have organized our resources and our calendar, fam, to be with this community for three to five years because we're asking this question, what happens when one church doesn't just offer resources but offers relationship, mutual relationship over the course of time? And man, we are seeing fruit in ways that we never would have expected. We're seeing the cycles of poverty being broken. We're seeing relational strife and resentment being healed. And we are seeing grown men give their life to Christ, crossing over from death to life. And guess what? The question has changed from, God, don't you care that we're going to die? To, God, I was dead all along, and this storm only showed me what was always true. Even before the rain began, will you heal me? The storm changed us. We were laid bare, and yet we had everything. The Lord in his grace would not let us stay the same. I can remember those quiet nights after the storm with my children, no phones, no TV, no distractions. We spent our evenings outside under candlelight because that was the only light we had. And it was our custom for months to just eat dinner on the patio. We rarely ate meat because we had no refrigeration. 
And uh, if you came to my house, you would find us outside probably singing a hymn in Spanish. It was really, really dark. It's impressive how many stars you can see when there is just no light, no light pollution. You can literally see bands, the bands of the Milky Way painting the night sky. I mean, it is enchanting. You know, astronomers will tell you that there are 250 billion stars in our galaxy. And and those same astronomers will tell you that there are 200 billion galaxies in the universe. And those are only the ones that we have access to with our telescopes. Those stars spoke to us. Those stars are endless. And so is God's care. Like the unending waves lapping on the beautiful Puerto Rican beaches, so God's care is unending too. And it spoke to us. And we're not insignificant. We're not forgotten. See, after a few weeks, Puerto Rico was out of the news. None of you were even thinking about my family at month three eating in the dark. I'm not saying that to guilt you. You just have your own lives. I get that. But guess what? God saw. His care was palpable. Every hundred years, 7.52 billion people are born. And every 100 years, 7.52 billion people die, completely changing the human composition on the small little planet. And yet God says, you're totally worth it. God's love is palpable. I mean, he, he knew that we wouldn't love him first, and so he sent his son to live and die for us, and so enchant and persuade our hearts with this incredible love and endless care. It's beautiful, it's present, and it presses in. That beauty can break the curse of status quo orthodoxy. It did for us. Can I remind you of one thing? We're average to below average people. Man, I keep saying it because I totally want to encourage you. Like we're just, we're just normal, you know? People hear our stories and they envision something far different. We just, man, we just got up after the storm, enchanted with Jesus. We thought about our orthodoxy and we let its beauty compel us to just do the next right thing, however weary we were. Our community has fundamentally changed. We were living status quo lives, orthodox but status quo. But then a violent storm came upon us. And we said, God, don't you care that we're going to die? And God said, I am the storm. I am the storm. And I'm here to make you fully and beautifully alive. Thank you.